Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is week two of our sermon series, Easter Encounters, a sermon series for Eastertide, which is, again, what we call the time between Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead and Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room. So this series will end on Ascension Sunday when Jesus gives us the Great Commission and leaves the earth in bodily form until his return at some point in the future when he will bring the fullness of the kingdom. If you're just joining us in this series, we're looking at some of the experiences that the first disciples had with the risen Jesus. Last Sunday, we began by looking at Mary Magdalene's Easter encounter at the empty tomb and why it seems that Jesus uh, met her first, appeared to her first. This morning, we're looking at Luke 24, verse 13 through 35, which Art just read for us. When Jesus catches up with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There's several lessons to learn and theological truths to glean from this story. Therefore, I invite us to open up our hearts to what the Spirit wants to say to us through this message so we can then apply it to our lives. Father, we do open up our hearts to you now. Holy Spirit, be present with us in visible ways. Reveal Christ to us. Lord, that we might see who you truly are, that we might embrace the gospel once again and be set free in the knowledge of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke 24, verse 13 through 35. Art read that for us, so I'm going to go now verse by verse. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can do that with whatever translation you have, or you can just follow along on the screen. Luke 24, beginning with verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice this episode follows the empty tomb scene on Easter morning. This is later that day in the afternoon. These two disciples were on their way home to a village called Emmaus. Now, there were several Emmauses in that time. We're not entirely sure which one it was. But nevertheless, they're headed there, likely headed home, since it seemed to them that the show was over. All of their hopes and their aspirations had died with Jesus on the cross. So get that picture. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Everything that had happened. Maybe they were discussing Jesus' arrest. Maybe they were talking about his mock trial that happened in the middle of the night. Maybe they were discussing his crucifixion. Likely they were. And of course, as we'll see in this episode, the empty tomb. 
What's up with that? What do we make of it? Verse 15, Luke says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Now, they were likely other, likely other travelers on the road. I have a hard time imagining that they were just, you know, by themselves, and then there appeared Jesus. They don't seem to be too startled by this scene, right? So, likely other travelers. One walks up behind them, listens in on their conversation. This is Jesus, but they don't know it. Look at verse 16. They were kept from recognizing him. Luke wants to communicate to us that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. Now, why is that? We'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. Obviously, Jesus here is pretending not to know what they're talking about. And look at verse 18. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? Who is Cleopas? In John chapter 19, verse 25, he tells us that Mary is the wife of Clopas, and this Mary was at the cross. Scholars believe Clopas is a slight variation of the name Cleopas. And if that's the case, then this is Cleopas and his wife, Mary. Now, maybe you've thought of this as being two men, but think about this. A husband and a wife headed home discussing what had happened. Some also believe that this could be the same Mary who is the mother of James, which Luke mentions in the previous episode along with the other women who went to the tomb that morning and found it empty. And again, some have speculated that this could be Jesus' own aunt and uncle. It, It could be several different people. We're not entirely clear. Between the differences in the synoptic gospel accounts, that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, so many people also being named Mary and James, which were common names in that day, it's, it's really hard to say. And of course, it could be that Luke purposely doesn't name the other disciple so that we would insert ourselves into this story. That's a possibility. But if the unnamed disciple is Mary, Cleopas' wife, then we can at least say that she was at the cross when Jesus died. And in that case, it's likely that they were discussing the crucifixion and the so-called claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. As we'll see as they talk a little bit further, It almost seems as if they had not heard Mary Magdalene's account of having hung around the tomb and met Jesus. But nonetheless, those claims must not have seemed credible or believable to them since these two disciples are headed home to Emmaus. Which is why when Jesus asks them, what are they talking about? They are visibly upset. I mean, they're walking, and when Jesus asks the question, they stop. It stops them in their tracks because Jesus surprises them 
with this question. What things? What things? Again, Jesus pretends not to know. He's interested in what they're going to say about it all. And then they respond. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Now notice what they don't say about Jesus. They said he was a prophet, that he said and did some great things, but no mention of him being the Messiah. Because in their minds, messiahs don't die. But Jesus did. Right? In that day, if someone claimed to be a messiah and yet they died, then what do you do? You quit, you go home, or you find another messiah. There's no concept in the ancient world of a dying and rising messiah. Verse 20. They say the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. Look at that, we had hoped. Meaning their hopes were dashed. The Jesus movement was over for them because Jesus did not redeem Israel in their minds. That is, he didn't make himself king. He didn't restore the line of David. He didn't throw off Roman rule and oppression. And he didn't fulfill messianic expectations and prophecies in their mind and bring about the kingdom of God on the earth. And notice they point out it's the third day couple of reasons they could be doing that. And some would say that uh, for Jews, someone is definitely dead when you get to the third day. <laughs> definitely dead. Their spirit has left their body for good. It's final. It's over. That's what they're saying. And or it could also be that they're recalling that Jesus had said something would happen on the third day, Right? And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. But from what they can tell, nothing has happened. It is over. And they go on in verse 22. In addition, some of our women amazed us. Look at that, amazed us. I don't know if you have your Bible with you and what translation you're reading from. This is the NIV. The NIV translates the Greek word existemes, how you say that, as amazed us. But I don't think really that this is the best translation. And here's why. For us, we English speakers, we think of being amazed, we think of, whoa, that's amazing, that's so good, right? Amazing, amazing grace. But I don't think that best conveys the idea here. Nor does it fit with the next two verses. So consider how other translations handle this verse. If you look at the New Revised Standard Version, it says, astounded us. 
The New American Standard Bible says, bewildered us. The voice translation, one that I like, says, shocked us. The J.B. Phillips New Testament says, disturbed us profoundly. (laughs) I think that's more in keeping with it. And of course, this Greek word could even be translated as confused us. Some of our women deeply disturbed us. And that makes sense. Back to verse 22. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. You get this picture. Empty tomb, no body, a vision of angels, The men double-checked. Got to have that happen. Got to have those men double-check. No body. Still no body. They did not see Jesus. And consider this. If this is Cleopas and his wife, and if she was at the empty tomb that morning, let's just say if she was at the empty tomb that morning, that makes it even more interesting. You could then read this whole encounter as a husband who doesn't believe his wife's report. (laughs) If you go back and look at the text, uh, you, you can see this as they're talking about this. Maybe if this is Mary and she was at the tomb trying to tell her husband, this is what, this is what we saw. This is what, and he's maybe denying it. No, that's not what you saw. Right, as we saw last week when Mary Magdalene goes back and reports this to the disciples, they don't believe her, you know? It's like, Mary, go have some wine and lay down. You know, you're, you're, you're seeing things. You're, not, you're distraught. It's been a hard three days. Maybe that's, maybe that's happening here. If it was, I can just see Cleopas looking over and say, but they didn't see Jesus. Regardless, look at this, Jesus isn't all that happy that these two were walking away, disbelieving, not more curious to follow up, not more intrigued by the story, and now failing to understand that this is exactly what he had prepared his disciples for and what was written in the Hebrew Scriptures about these things. You know, I've told you last week that uh, all of these gospel writers, they, they write with pastoral concerns in mind. They not only write for their day, but for others who would read it. So this isn't just reporting the facts. This is a message for us. Put yourself in the story. What would you say? What would you do? How would you respond? Are you so quickly going to leave this story of the resurrected Jesus and not give it more thought? not do more investigation. I think that's what Luke wants the readers to see. And look at Jesus' response. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish and slow to believe. Literally, how slow to understand you are. How slow to understand you are. I can't help but hear that in the Yoda voice, sorry. 
how slow to understand you are, and how slow to act. You don't get it. Jesus says, all of this was foretold by the Hebrew prophets in your scriptures, what we as the church today call the Old Testament. Verse 26, he said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus is saying, was this not what was supposed to happen? He's setting them up for what he's about to explain to them. Jesus says, first the suffering of the Messiah, and then the glory of his kingdom. Listen to that. First the suffering of the Messiah, and then the glory of his kingdom. And you see, they just wanted the glory. But Jesus says, first the suffering of the Messiah, then the glory of his kingdom, then him taking the throne, then him reigning and ruling as kings do, as it was prophesied. Verse 27, and look at that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's another way of saying the law and the prophets. They're holy, inspired scriptures. He explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. You get in this picture? For seven miles, Jesus gives these two disciples and ultimately the entire early church right, that read these Gospels. He gives them a Christocentric, right, Christ at the center, a Christocentric or cruciformed reading of the entire law and prophets, showing them how the Old Testament Scripture pointed to Jesus of Nazareth, which was really himself, but they don't know this yet. Seven miles giving them a Christocentric reading of Scripture. This is how you should now go back and understand the Old Testament. Now, this is why we spend so much time in the Gospels and the New Testament here at Grantham Church. So that we can go back and read the Old Testament properly through a Christocentric lens. And we can only imagine, right, what Jesus says to these two disciples that maybe it's reflected in various places, like in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is unique in that he often quotes from the Old Testament. Why does he do that? To try to show us how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Where did Matthew get that? Have you ever considered that maybe it was from Jesus himself, passed on by these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And maybe we we see it also reflected in the preaching that's recorded, the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts. And maybe that's where Paul gets it as he writes in his letters, pointing Old Testament scriptures, using them to point to Jesus. And what about the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is all about bridging the two, helping us to understand how Jesus is seen in the Old Testament. And then, of course, passed down through two millennia of Christian teaching and preaching. What all did Jesus say in those seven miles to Emmaus? You ever thought of that? Maybe, maybe Jesus started with the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15. That the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent through a saving act, redeeming us from the fall. And maybe he talked about how Moses and the Exodus was a foreshadowing 
of what Christ would do, which Jesus showed his disciples, right, by changing the meaning of the Passover meal there at the Last Supper. Or how the whole temple system was fulfilled in Jesus' death. On the Day of Atonement, as Christ is on the cross, the lamb is being killed in the temple. Jesus was the lamb. Maybe Jesus said that. Or maybe he explained how the law was never enough and it only paved the way for the grace of Christ. Or how Jesus, when he was on the cross, quoted from Psalm 22, that if you read Psalm 22, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go on and read that chapter. It eerily, eerily describes crucifixion. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. Maybe Jesus explained that. And it's likely, most likely, that he shared how the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, prophesied 800 years before, was uniquely fulfilled in Jesus just three days before at Golgotha. Listen to Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is his power. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, Like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. I can hear Jesus expounding on this text. He was oppressed, right? We like sheep have all gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a a lamb led to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent, but he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, Isaiah says, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will provide the spoils with the strong because he's poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the sinners. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And then maybe 
Jesus explained to them that since the tomb was empty and that Jesus said that he would rise, again, remember those words, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. That means that new creation and the age of the kingdom had really begun in Jesus after all. And if that's the case, you just imagine the dots that they are connecting as they listen to Jesus. If that is the case, then this changes everything. Everything must be rethought. Everything must be relearned. And everyone must be reborn to see it. Maybe Jesus said something like that. We can only imagine. Verse 28 As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. While it was customary for good Jews to offer this kind of hospitality, Luke wants us to know that they urged him strongly. It wasn't just hospitality that was driving their hearts here. It was they were in the presence of Jesus. And he had captured them with his words, with his expounding on the Scriptures. Clearly the presence of Jesus and his words had captured the full attention of these two disciples. And don't forget, they still don't know that this great expositor of the Scriptures is Jesus until... Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, right? He holds the bread. He gives thanks. He gives thanks for the bread. He broke it and began to give it to them. Look at that. Notice Jesus is invited as a guest, but he's playing the role of the host. This is his table. Luke wants us to see, this is his table. And why now? Why are their eyes opened when he breaks the bread? It could be for a few reasons, and maybe it's all of these. One, it could be that these disciples had been present when Jesus did this with his 12 disciples on Maundy Thursday in the upper room. It's likely not just the 12 at the table, but others in the room who are observing and participating in this. Number two, it could be that at this point his nail-scarred hands are visible when he reaches out with the bread. We know he still had the scars, as we'll see next week with Thomas, and why that is the case. Or three, it could be because at this very moment, look at this, at the table, after the hearing of the word. After the hearing of the word, that Jesus is made visible in the breaking of bread. Communion. Point being, though he is not seen bodily now, he can be seen and touched in the table. Isn't that wonderful? Come back next Sunday, we're going to take communion together. 
Back to verse 31. Just as soon as their eyes were opened to recognize Jesus. Look at that. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him. He vanishes from their sight. Which isn't the only time that the risen Jesus appears and then disappears during Eastertide. We'll see more on that next week. But look at verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It was like we, ex- we had experienced this sort of burning within before. How did we not recognize him? How did we not know until this point? And the word that Luke uses for opened the scriptures to us is the same word that's used when Jesus, earlier in the gospel, opened the eyes of the blind. He opened up the scriptures to us. It's the opening of our spiritual eyes. Look at this church that is front and center in this story here. The opening of spiritual eyes so that we can see the risen Jesus. The rest of this passage reads this way. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now, it was almost dark, so they're, they're not waiting around till light. They're headed off back those seven miles they had just come. They find the 11, right, because Judas isn't there anymore. They found the 11 and those with them assembled together, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon Peter. Then the two told of what had just happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Which brings us back to the question at the beginning of the message. Why did God keep these two disciples from recognizing Jesus in the first place? I want us to think about this. Let's give this some careful thought, as well as we'll see some other lessons and truths that Luke wants us to know so we can faithfully follow Jesus and recognize him in our own Easter encounters. Why were the two disciples kept from recognizing Jesus? One, he wanted their honesty. And he wanted to see how they would respond in not knowing who he was. And this isn't the first time this sort of thing happens. In Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus, I just imagine around the campfire, asked his disciples, you know, they're, they're, remember they had gone out, he had sent them out to evangelize and begin to share the good news. And they come back and they're reporting on what they experienced. It was, it was amazing. Like we were casting out demons. We were healing people just like you. Oh, it was awesome. And Jesus said, hmm, question. Who do people say that I am? Remember that? I just imagine, just, you can hear a pin drop. They all look at each other. You imagine what it would take to come out of an Orthodox Jew's mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. But Peter says it. Jesus is concerned about this question. Who do you say that I am? And what, what do you make of all this? What are you going to do with this? You can't just walk away. What are you going to do now? And then notice earlier in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. You remember that? 
The same language is used here when Jesus comes near the two disciples. It's as if Luke wants to tell us the kingdom of God has come near to them because the kingdom of God is in Jesus. Jesus shows us the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God has come near. What will they do when the kingdom of God comes knocking on their door? What will we do when Jesus comes to us? Will we recognize him? And then secondly, why were they kept from recognizing Jesus? Because he wanted them to see him in the scripture in the table. He wants us today as a church to see him in the scripture, to experience him there and in the table as well. The Lord doesn't want his disciples to recognize him by sight anymore because they're not going to get that privilege anymore when he ascends to the Father. But rather, get used to encountering him in the scriptures. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message, from hearing the word, and the, and the word is heard through the message about Christ. Which is why it's important that we regularly read our Bibles. To encounter the Lord there. And why we preached Preach Christ from the Scriptures so that the Spirit might reveal Jesus to us and change us through it. And secondly, through the table of communion, He wants us to see Him where the Lord meets us in a memorial meal that is both a symbol and a sacrament. Meaning this, that there is deep spiritual impact on us when we partake together in receiving the elements that represent his body and his blood. This is a message for the church. Come and experience Jesus today through the word of God and through the table. Lastly, they were kept from recognizing Jesus because he wanted them to see the need for a spiritual revelation. That is, it is God who opens people's eyes. We, we need to know this for ourselves. We need to know this for others who we may think just don't get it. It's God who opens eyes. Remember, Jesus said this in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to Jesus at night so he's not seen by anyone when he does. And Nicodemus is like the educated of the educated. He, he is the teacher of teachers. I mean, you don't get any more spiritual than Nicodemus, right? But Jesus tells him, you must be born again to see the kingdom. You've got to start over, Nicodemus. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to be like a child. I don't care how many degrees you have. This doesn't, this doesn't make a disciple. What I'm talking about, Nicodemus, is spiritual stuff. You see, unless the Lord opens our eyes to understand the Scriptures, to see Him in the table, and to encounter Him as we walk along the road each day and seek to make sense of this world, then we, Jesus would say, are but blind followers, and like the Pharisees, blind guides. We need a spiritual revelation. Folks, you can't, look at this, you can't be a true follower of Jesus by simply using your own intellect and power. 
And that is why the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus. Remember, he said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. But you don't get that, folks, without the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Therefore, what does this mean? It means we must humble ourselves and ask the Lord for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better so that we might follow him better. Oh, that God would open the eyes of our heart, as Paul said, not just our minds, so that we might experience his transforming power and unleash more of his life in us and through us as we follow him on the road. As we round the corner for the final stretch of this message, let's think about the other lessons that we can learn from the Emmaus Road. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you through these. Real quick, as I was just saying, we can be in the presence of the Lord and not recognize Him because the eyes of our heart haven't been opened. And the way we recognize the Lord, folks, is through humility. Another lesson we see in this is we can quit and we can walk away, just like these two disciples, and we can miss the Lord. In His grace, He may catch up with us. (laughs) Thank God for that. But we will have missed some things, right? They missed it. They missed Mary's experience. They missed what had happened with the other disciples when they, they show up and they realize they had missed some things. Don't quit. Don't give up too soon. Don't walk away for you might miss some things. And you can never go back and relive it. Another lesson like the two disciples on the road Thank God for this. Jesus can restore our soul. He can revive our dead aspirations and renew our calling. Reminds these two, you have been given a task to tell others about me, for I've risen. Lastly, I think it tells us this. We must invite Jesus to abide with us. Otherwise, he may move on to those who desire a fresh Easter encounter, right? Jesus was going to keep on walking, but they invited him in. Isn't that an invitation to us this morning? Jesus may keep on walking, but will you invite him in? Brothers and sisters, how is the Lord speaking to you through this Easter encounter on the road to Emmaus. How is the Spirit at work in your heart? Whatever the Lord is saying, however you're being invited to respond, I want to encourage you to do that this morning so that you and I can have a fresh 
Easter encounter and be changed by abiding in the risen Jesus. Amen. Father, you are so good. And Lord, I am just, I am struck by the beauty of this story and the way in which it is told. As we read the Gospels, the Holy Spirit tells us this isn't just any story. This isn't just any text. This is the word of life. And it has the power to change. Holy Spirit, help us to abide in Jesus today. And may we respond in obedience to your calling. And all of God's people said, Amen.